welcome to the Modern Mamas podcast. We're two modern mamas with a goal to inspire empowerment, self-love, deep physical and spiritual nourishment, holistic health, and joy, no matter your journey, gender, or perspective. I'm Laura of Radical Roots. I'm a certified CrossFit trainer, certified nutrition consultant, and mama to Evie Wilder. And I'm Jess of Hold Space Wellness. I am a level one CrossFit trainer, a licensed and certified athletic trainer with a master's in kinesiology, and mama to Bear and note that while we're here to provide advice and insights, we aren't medical practitioners and always recommend that you check with a trusted provider before implementing any changes. Thanks for joining us. We are so happy you're here. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Modern Mamas podcast. We have a very, very awesome guest with us today, and I cannot wait to introduce her. Um, at this point, let's see, we are, this is the first week of March that this is airing. And so I'm going to start with just a quick update from me and then we're going to dive right into the material. But, um, I spent most of February traveling with my husband and my baby. And, um, so far we've got one trip down. We went to San Diego and next week we go to Portland. And then after that, actually going into March too, then we end up in, um, Seattle and then in San Diego. And so, update for the first trip we took is just that she was a dream. I feel very, very fortunate to have a baby that seems to really actually love to travel. The whole flight out to San Diego, she just chatted on the plane to all the people around us with just Babel, was very, very happy. Then the the way home was a night flight, and she um, nursed at takeoff, slept the whole flight, (laughs) nursed at landing, and was super content. So she loves to fly, apparently, at this point at least, and uh, she slept really well in the hotel as well. They had a Um, we just, my work, they're awesome. They prepared ahead and they set up a nice clean pack and play for us. And she slept really well in there. And so, so far so good. I'm knocking on some wood right now that that uh, maintains, but I will have more updates for you on our travels in the next month. So stay tuned for that. Um, that's kind of it for us. I mean, if you, you can always just follow me on Instagram, check my stories to see what's going on on a daily basis. But I, don't want to waste any more time talking about me. I want to introduce our wonderful guests. Um, today on the show, we have Lily Nichols, and she is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author of a uh, excuse me, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition and exercise. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, which I've had a chance to peek at is amazing. An online course of the same name presents a revolutionary nutrient dense, lower carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Her unique approach has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, most without the need for blood sugar lowering medication, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. That's so rad. Lily's second book, real food for pregnancy. Oh, this is the one I've also had a chance to peek at outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides the evidence 920 citations and counting that supports a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. Lily is also creator of the popular blog, PilatesNutritionist.com, which explores a variety of topics related to real food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. I am thrilled to have you on. Um, so welcome, Lily. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Great Super intro. Super excited. <laughs> um, I cannot wait to dive into this stuff because I am, um, our listeners know I'm a certified nutrition consultant. I'm very passionate about the power of real food. Um, one of my big things recently is just this concept of if everyone just cooked the majority of our meals at home, 
so many, I feel so many chronic diseases would be alleviated or lessened at least. And so, um, just eating real food, preparing it ourselves, knowing where our food comes from, avoiding the junk is so huge. And I love that you take that mindset and specifically gear it towards work with moms, um, prenatal, postpartum, et cetera. And so I can't wait to dive in because most of our listeners here are moms or planning to be moms or, it's on their radar at some point in life, um, so I'm excited to dive in. And we are going to focus primarily on prenatal nutrition today, so that should be awesome. So thank yes. you for coming on the show. So happy to be here. This topic is like near and dear to my heart, and there's just so many facets that we can go into. So we'll try not to get too <laughs> sucked down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yes, and we had already talked to you guys before starting to record about her coming back on, so I'm already preemptively stealing some more of your time down the road because I know you are a wealth of knowledge. So thank you. All for it. Um, so we'd like to start with a, like a, some sort of a fun icebreaker question. And my question for you is, I probably should have told you this ahead of time, but I didn't. <laughs> what has been the hi- your highlight of 2018 so far? So we're about two months in. What's, what's been best? Yeah, the highlight, well, definitely finishing this second book. I Yay. mean, how can that? Yeah, this is like... Um, I guess it's kind of my third kiddo. I have one kiddo of my own, but I feel like my two books are also Mm -hmm. my kids. (laughs) So (laughs) getting this off my plate, you know, having a toddler, uh, a still nursing toddler on board while, while writing this. Have um, you been writing mostly at home? Yes. Okay. Like almost, almost entirely at home. Yeah. So yeah, having a, um, nothing gets done without childcare, of of course. So Thank, thank God for some childcare, but it's been, a, you know, a huge labor of love and it's been, um, much more challenging than writing my first book I wrote before I had, before I had my son. And so that was like, you can get in, get out right when you're, you know, inspired. And this time around, it's just right whenever I have time research, whenever I have time between things, nap times, the, it's all, it was just all over the place. So it's an absolute miracle that it is, in the flesh, finally. Our last episode that aired was actually um, about being like a work from home mom. Uh, Jess and I, I work from home. Jess works out of the house, but just how we manage it as working moms. And for me, same thing. Like I, now it's just work whenever I can. (laughs) And so I feel you on that for sure. Um, So good job. I'm very impressed. I can't imagine writing a book. That's for sure. So bravo. I can't wait to dive in a little bit deeper to this one. And we'll link to um, both your books in the show notes for our listeners to get their hands on. So that one is now it's released. It's published. Real food for pregnancy will be released by the time this goes live. Um, and it releases at the end of February. So we're, we're close. It's available for pre-order right now. And, um, yeah. So by the time it's there, be out in the world, a wealth of knowledge without a doubt. Um, so that's awesome. Okay, cool. That's a good highlight. I think it's pretty fitting. Um, yes. So now, I guess let's just dive into some of the meat. But before we dive into the meat, I would like to hear a little bit more about you. So give us, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you found uh, this passion and calling for yourself? Sure. Um, you know, I've specialized in prenatal nutrition for most of my career as a dietitian and, um, and later becoming a certified diabetes educator. You know, I, I sort of stumbled into this field a little bit by accident, at least on the gestational diabetes side of things. I'd always had a, a very um, personal interest in prenatal nutrition. I just found it fascinating the ways that traditional cultures ate and prepared their bodies for pregnancy and for nursing. And really in my career, tried to always 
go back to the, you know, the modern literature and see, like, is there evidence to back up these specific practices? I just find that part fascinating. But I really dove into the, especially the gestational diabetes side of things um, in my work in the field. I've worked in public policy for gestational diabetes and clinical practice, both on my own and working under a perinatologist, done a lot of consulting and research also in the prenatal nutrition field. And it was really in these roles that it became clear that the conventional prenatal dietary advice, which is really just a version of the U.S. government dietary guidelines, does not reflect the latest scientific evidence, nor does it provide you know, optimal nutrient intake for mamas and their babies um, and is nowhere close to the nutrient density we find in traditional cultures. And it was in really in clinical practice with my gestational diabetes work that I was able to see the difference between the conventional guidelines Sadly, the ones that I had worked on in public policy, how they, they failed a lot of moms. They don't help their blood sugar in many cases and sometimes make them worse. Um, and that led me to d- develop my real food approach to managing GD, which is lower carb than the traditional um, dietary advice. And then by default, you go lower carb, it's higher fat as well, um, and more nutrient dense. And we had better outcomes all around. And I also noticed that when people were referred to me who didn't have gestational diabetes but had other pregnancy issues, a lot of times when I'd take a dietary recall, the the what they'd be eating would be very similar to the women who had blood sugar issues, you know, too high in carbs, especially refined carbs, too low in fat, um, not enough real food in general. And so essentially I was giving very similar advice to those people and we'd see their issues also improve. So we'd see, you know, their weight gain in pregnancy normalize or even out. We'd see their blood pressure get better and, of course, also their blood sugar. Um, But a lot of these parameters would get better. And so I was like, all right, I got to I got to like get this out to, you know, the mainstream, not just have all my focus be on gestational diabetes, because so many pregnancy complications can be prevented with better food and better advice. But unfortunately, if you follow the guidelines, you won't be eating that way <laughs> because they kind of sway you away from eating a lot of these nutrient-dense foods that ironically were the same foods that traditional cultures were all about. So I'm sure we could go down a rabbit hole there on why, <laughs> like oh, yeah. funding and all, you know, all that, but we don't need to get there. I think what's most important is just getting the information out in terms of what is most nutrient-dense, what is going to support these mamas, what's going to be the most effective nutrition for their health and then the health of their baby. And I love that. I feel like you're not just helping moms, but in, by helping these moms, you're starting a new life out on healthier feet, which is just setting them up for just a better life, um, down the road. So that's super awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. There are so many, um, so many evidence-based reasons like to back up that statement that you just said, like risks of obesity, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, like all of those risks in a, in a baby as they grow up into adulthood can be affected by a mother's nutrient intake in pregnancy. It's really like in some ways overwhelming and frightening and also really, really cool that we have the power to change that. Yeah. I feel like there's something so empowering about taking control of our health and um, not just, and we talk about this a lot on this podcast about not just kind of taking whatever your practitioner says as fact, because it's really, it's, it's in our hands to seek out information. But the hard part is, is that this information is not necessarily readily available. So 
I love that you're fighting that good fight and <laughs> helping to make it more available to moms who that can yes. then take that information and feel so much more empowered with, um, with what they bring to the table. So that is so awesome. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, do you want to just, let's just dive into some prenatal nutrition stuff. Um, I think this is probably my favorite thing we'll talk about is just the common misconceptions because I did a lot of research before getting pregnant and I, I'm a rebel by nature. Our listeners, most of our listeners know that. And so for me, um, I wanted to ask questions about every single thing any practitioner ever told me. <laughs> so, um, yes. let's dive into some of the misconceptions. I think the first one, and you've already touched on this a little bit is the, uh, the issue of carbohydrate intake. And I know what yes. are, what is the, the conventional recommendation in terms of carb intake during pregnancy? Yeah. Um, and this is something that I had to, that was pretty much the whole reason for writing book number <laughs> one was to show how that recommendation is crazy and mm-hmm. show that a lower carb diet is safe in pregnancy. Mm-hmm. The Conventional recommendation is 45 to 65% of calories coming from carbs. That's crazy. So like half the diet. Um, And if you do the math that, you know, if we assume most pregnant women need approximately like 2,200 to 2,600 calories a day, that's 250 to 420 grams of carbs per day. And this is just like an average pregnant woman. It's it's a lot. It's a lot. It's incredible. (laughs) Uh, yeah. And then at the same time they have, you know, warnings in the conventional guidelines that it's supposedly unsafe to go less than 175 grams per day. So you're looking at a minimum of 175 grams, um, by their definition. I devoted a whole chapter to debunking the 175 gram myth, um, in my first book, because that is, that information is most commonly given to women with gestational diabetes. If you have a blood sugar issue, then carbohydrates are kind of important because they're the main nutrient that'll raise your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. And yet the advice given to these women is like pretty high carb. (laughs) It doesn't help their blood sugar. But, um, 175 is high. I think anything over 150 is, is high. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's on a, on a relative scale, it's high. And you know, it's funny. Everybody's definition of low carb is so different that it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to give a perfect definition because something that might be low carb to one person mm. is higher carb to another. But certainly, I agree with you. You start getting above 150 and you're like, okay, like mm-hmm. if you're a super active human being who like burns a lot of energy and you're, you know, have all other parameters in your health are pointing to you can tolerate lots of carbohydrates without any issue, no weight issues, no blood sugar issues, no. PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, Mm -hmm. um, then yeah, maybe you can get away with more carbs. But if you're not in that category, which sadly, that is the majority of Americans these days, you probably don't need that much. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can probably benefit from going a little lower on carbs. And usually when people go lower on carbs, the things that they're eliminating first and foremost are sugars and refined carbohydrates, Mm -hmm. which are essentially pretty nutrient devoid when it comes to well, when it comes to food in general, but when it, when it comes to pregnancy, you know, yeah. meeting your nutrient needs of pregnancy, you don't necessarily need that many more calories, but you actually do need significantly more nutrients, yeah. which points to the direction of just upping the quality of the food we're eating, eliminating the low quality carbohydrates first and foremost, and focusing on eating, you know, real less processed foods. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
yeah, we can go into research on on the carb stuff because it's more than just, you know, people with blood sugar issues. It's it excessive amounts of carbohydrates can affect many different parts of um, pregnancy. So we can dive into that if you want to or move on to the next. Maybe just a little bit because I, I did. I remember I listened to you speak on a different podcast and you mentioned a little bit about um, and this is kind of this is kind of intense. But at the same time, I think it's important. You, you, you talked about how insulin issues, I think insulin resistance can actually lead to potential birth defect or miscarriage. Is that is that true? It, yeah, so yes, and I'll, I'll explain. So um, so insulin, of course, is, is a hormone that your body um, releases from your pancreas in response to high blood sugar. And uh, when your body is more insulin resistant, it has a little more challenge bringing your bl- blood sugar down, at least it, in a reasonable amount of time. Mm-hmm. And they've shown that um, women who have m- even mildly elevated blood sugar in the first trimester specifically, those have been linked to a higher risk of congenital heart defects and also neural tube defects. So the big, those, those issues with like, you know, organ development or structural development, those happen in the first eight weeks of pregnancy because the first eight weeks of pregnancy is when all your organs are being formed. So, um, that's before most women find out they're pregnant. Cause like the way that pregnancy dating is done, you find out pretty much at earliest when you're technically four weeks pregnant, Mm -hmm. even though you're really probably two weeks pregnant because it's dated from your last menstrual period, if that makes sense. So you're like a month into knowing that you're pregnant and like the organs are already formed. Whether or not your kid's going to have, you know, 10 fingers and 10 toes, like that's predetermined pretty much. So they've shown that, you know, even mildly elevated blood sugar, these are below the diagnostic criteria for gestational diabetes are linked to higher risks for those things. Um, So that's, that's frightening. And I believe that's even more frightening given that about half of Americans have some sort of blood sugar issue, diabetes or prediabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. So this is really, you know, not to be doom and gloom, but this is like, you know, extra incentive to like eat super, super well, Mm -hmm. um, take control of your health, even in the preconception planning phase. And we have a lot of listeners who are in that phase. I know the majority of the questions that we get are from people who are starting to think about trying. So I think that's really, really important information. Yes. Yes. And then, um, yeah. And then just when you were talking about diet during pregnancy, Mm -hmm. a higher carbohydrate diet is linked to higher levels of weight gain in mom during pregnancy. Um, women who eat more, especially more refined carbohydrates, they have pregnancy weight gain 18 pounds higher on average than women who eat mainly unprocessed carbohydrates, mm-hmm. which is significant. Yeah. Um, there's also, you know, a higher chance of developing gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, um, gallbladder disease in pregnancy, and then some of these carryover effects um, for development of your baby. So we mentioned the ones in early pregnancy, but there's also a higher risk of obesity, um, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease in children who are born to moms who eat um, a very high carb diet in pregnancy. That's fascinating. Um, well, then I guess on the other end of that, I know we, we get questions about ketosis. Is Can you go too low carb during pregnancy? Yeah, good question. So the ketosis question is <laughs> one that I get a lot. Again, yeah. that's, uh, that's something that I devoted the whole I think it's chapter 11 of real food for gestational diabetes is all going through like the nuances on ketones. Yeah. Um, with, let me state this with carbohydrates, 
what defines a lower carb or a not lower carb diet is different for every person. Mm-hmm. In pregnancy, your body is more prone to go into a benign state known as nutritional ketosis. So you have very mildly elevated ketone levels in your blood, but you may have a lot of ketones in your urine. The two, those two units don't necessarily correlate. Um, however, that's a, that's a normal part of pregnancy. And some people take this to mean that um, going low carb would be unsafe. Mm. It's not necessarily that it's not necessarily that easy or that simple of an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, ketosis is normal. On the other hand, when you're pregnant, you don't necessarily, because you're prone to go in, into ketosis, you don't necessarily have to eat super, super low carb, meaning what most people would consider a ketogenic diet outside of pregnancy. You don't necessarily need to go that low, nor do I believe you need to go so low as in, in order to like promote higher levels of ketones, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't think there's evidence to suggest that that is, that has any benefit. Okay. You're going to go into ketosis regardless. You're more likely to go into ketosis when you go low carb. Mm-hmm. More of what I have looked at is how do we ensure you get all the nutrients you need micronutrients you need for fetal development during pregnancy. And if you start running the numbers and doing nutrient analyses on meal plans, it gets trickier and trickier to meet all of the micronutrient needs the lower and lower you go in carbs. Meaning, I don't think the vast majority of people need to go below, I'd say, I've I've personally, with few exceptions, had a, a pregnant woman on a lower carbohydrate diet that's below like 50 grams of carbs. Most of the time, the lowest I go is about 75 actually. And we're talking about people who have a clinical reason to go low carb, which is people who have a a blood sugar issue. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, blood sugar is very, very, very important. High blood sugar levels is, is actually a known teratogen, a known thing that can cause birth defects. So like, for example, a woman with type one diabetes, she may need to go a lot lower carb than a woman with gestational diabetes. And even still a woman with gestational diabetes may need to go lower carb than a woman who has perfect blood sugar numbers. Um, but we also need to be taking into consideration the micronutrients and if your version of low carb or quote unquote like keto diet means you're not getting enough plant foods, I'm all for animal foods. We could talk all about right. that. But like if you're not getting enough plants, you also may be risking inadequate intake of certain nutrients because there's like a well-planned low carb ketogenic mm-hmm. style diet. And then there's like a not so well-planned one. And it's not as simple as just lower your carbs and it's good. It's mm-hmm. what are you eating when you do lower your carbs? I love that. For Cause I feel like that's a, people. that's a good yeah. spot to be. It's like you can eat low carb as long as you're getting in your, I feel like if you just shoot to get in enough of the micronutrients every single day, that'll keep you from going too, too low. I imagine. Yeah. And by default, like most women end up eating somewhere in on my plans anyways, end mm-hmm. up eating somewhere between like 90 to 150 ish or so grams of carbs. And mm-hmm. then a, a portion of those carbohydrates would also be coming from fiber. So whether yeah. you're counting total carbs and net carbs, you get into <laughs> all the minutia of it. 
But um, when I've run the nutrient analysis on this, that's usually where I end up. And I also have to, you also have to kind of logically think through it. And, you know, as somebody who has been pregnant before and you have as well, mm-hmm. what kinds of foods do you want to eat when you're pregnant? And sometimes if you have nausea or food aversions or other things going on, your body actually pushes you to eat more carbohydrates, um, at least for a period of time. And so it's, it's, I don't think it makes sense to go so low carb that you're ignoring all of those cues and maybe also ignoring some of these micronutrients that we do get from plants, you know, like vegetables are important. Totally. (laughs) And also there's carbs in everything. So even if you're not eating grains and even if you're eating like super paleo, right? So like no grains, no legumes, no dairy, you'll still be getting carbs from other sources. Mm -hmm. Like vegetables all have carbs, nuts and seeds all have carbs, berries have carbs, even Mm -hmm. all these low carb foods still have carbs. Mm -hmm. And by default, you need to have some of those in your diet um, as well, in my opinion. um, I I agree. Micronutrient needs. And I just feel also as though pregnancy and postpartum um, are some of the most important times for us to be in tune with our body's needs and actually listening into what it's asking for versus like, I need to be in ketosis or I need to eat low carb. It's like, well, what, what? is your body telling you that it needs? And maybe not if it's asking for cupcakes, but if it's asking for cupcakes, then maybe looking into why are cupcakes on your mind? What is it? Maybe it's yes. like you need a little bit more glucose or, you know, whatever the yes. case may be, which yes. I think is yes. fascinating. Exactly. But yeah, I appreciate this question because I've been, uh, I've been misquoted on this a lot, mm-hmm. um, on my stance on carbohydrates or ketogenic diets, because I'm like the first, dietitian to publicly speak out and say like, no, no, low level ketosis is normal. Mm -hmm. It's not diabetic ketoacidosis. Everything's fine. It's not going to harm baby's brain development. I was actually frequently in ketosis during my pregnancy just by default. And I was not eating super low carb. I was more getting somewhere in the range that I already discussed. And I was still pretty regularly in ketosis. My kiddo's super smart and good to go. (laughs) Right. But people think that because I've defended the safety of physiologic, like nutritional ketosis and pregnancy that I'm by default endorsing a diet that has like less than 20 grams of carbohydrates a day. And it's just not the same thing because what level of carbohydrates puts you in ketosis and pregnancy is an entirely different animal Mm -hmm. than outside of pregnancy. So one is, yeah, there, there's just, it's a nuance that, um, a lot of people don't discuss. So I'm, thank I'm, you. Of course. I'm glad I brought it up. I'm kind of, I don't weigh or measure or track anything right now. Cause I've, uh, I just am not, but I think I'm pretty close to ketosis right now, if not in it. And, um, it just has been eating tons of fat postpartum. It's just felt so right. And so it's, it's pretty yeah. cool to just be able to play around with it and see what works well. I eat some berries every day, so many vegetables, <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, I agree. I just think, listening to our bodies. And, and I love how you say that for every single person, low carb, it's just so relative. Low carb for me is going to be different than low carb for someone yes. competing at the CrossFit games, et cetera. Um, so exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. Well then moving on from carbohydrate, because we could probably talk about that one an entire episode. <laughs> yes. Um, what about other foods to avoid? So salt is a big one, um, fish, etc. What are your thoughts on some of those? I guess we can start with salt. Yeah. Start with salt. Yeah, we could talk an hour about like every single one of these. So I'll try to keep it brief. Um, You know, conventional guidelines on salt are, they don't make any sense, especially in the context of pregnancy. Um, You know, you have extra fluids in your body when you're pregnant, your blood volume goes up, you have amniotic fluid. 
anytime you have more fluids on board, you need more electrolytes on board as well. And salt is an electrolyte. It is a, a necessary essential nutrient that you need to be consuming. So you actually need more salt during pregnancy, not less. Um, it is vital to many different functions in your body. The electrolyte is just the electrolyte function is just one of many. It's actually required um, for baby's development as well. It's known to be important for the normal growth of both the placenta and your baby. And not having enough salt can actually make you what's called become volume depleted or you know clinically dehydrated. So it's the opposite of what people think. People think that you eat salt and you're going to get all puffy. You actually you eat salt and you get less puffy. There's actually lower rates of preeclampsia yeah. in women who are eating enough salt. They can correct preeclampsia in some clinical cases wow. by giving more salt. I'm having um, all these light bulb moments because my first trimester, I was very, very, very sick. And all I wanted yeah. was my husband's scrambled eggs doused, like doused and probably impalatable to anybody else. I wanted so much sea salt. We bought just the Celtic sea salt um, or the pink Himalayan yes. and then just uh, gluten-free sourdough with butter. And like th- that was my meal for... Uh, at least five weeks straight, and I couldn't get enough salt. So now I'm understanding yeah. why. <laughs> yes, yes. And a lot of women have cravings for salty things. You think about like pickles and olives cravings. I think those are um, just classic examples of your body telling you that you need more. And there's, I have so many references on the book, um, both in like the general nutrition chapter and also in a section on high blood pressure. I'm um, talking about the salt issue because it is, I was surprised at just the sheer volume of evidence I found counter to low salt intake in pregnancy. It's wild. So eat salt to taste. Don't be afraid of it is my um, take home message on this. And Does conventional medicine say to avoid salt, to avoid preeclampsia? Yeah. If you get diagnosed with preeclampsia, the, the actual, the, the like dietary prescription is a low salt diet. And that's unfortunate. No, it's crazy. <laughs> well, that's that's why you're here. To our carb thing, they ignore the fact that blood sugar and blood pressure mm-hmm. often go hand in hand. So you normalize the blood sugar, and oftentimes the blood pressure comes down as well. So again, a link back to the back to the carb thing that we were talking about earlier. But yeah, definitely eat enough salt. Um, the next one you mentioned was uh, fish, I believe. Oh, fish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I ate so much wild salmon. Like I can't even almost every day, second trimester. That's all I wanted. I also had the salmon thing in the second (laughs) trimester. Super weird. Let me ask you though, I've been asking on different interviews I've been doing. Did you crave like sushi or raw fish? Yeah. And next time around, I'm going to eat it. Uh, this time I did not. Yeah. I was eating a lot of canned, the canned wild canned, um, skin on bone in. And then I would just also pan like pan. I I love, I wanted the skin, like crispy skin. So, um, now see your body is super smart. So the skin, especially of salmon, um, soup, that's the most concentrated, uh, omega three source other than the fish eggs. If you're talking like a fillet of salmon, the skin is most concentrated in in the omega threes. Oh yeah. And then you also get this super important amino acid called glycine in the skin as well, which is important for all of your like bone skin connective tissue and that of your baby too. So you're like your baby's skeleton for your stretching skin, your like breasts that are growing bigger. Like you need more of that amino acid and that's mostly found in the skin, bone and connective tissue of, of animal foods. So I can thank salmon skin for no stretch marks this time around. 
Yes. (laughs) I think, no, it's seriously that you need like high amounts of this. Yeah. uh, I ate so much Help with your connective tissue. Um, I'll come back to the raw fish thing in a minute, but I hear from so many women and myself included that, um, raw fish is craved in pregnancy. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a potential, potential reason for it. Um, where are we going? Fish. Yeah. So, um, Yes. So the issue usually with fish is the mercury, right? Everyone's concerned that if you eat fish, you'll get too much mercury and mercury is a known neurotoxin. So the idea is that if you eat more fish, then you might harm your baby's brain development, which is super scary. Nobody wants to do that. It actually um, turns out this information is a little bit misguided. Um, There are certain fish that are high in mercury and are probably best avoided, which includes swordfish, king mackerel, tilefish, and shark. Um, tuna also generally is suggested to be limited to about six ounces per week because it's pretty high mercury. But aside from those, almost every other type of fish is safe to eat. And that's because most fish also contains high amounts of selenium, which is a mineral that helps your body. Um, it binds to mercury and prevents it from being absorbed. So when they've looked at, and this, by the way, is like nowhere in conventional guidelines was nowhere in my nutrition training in school. This is something I learned like way after the fact. Um, when they look at studies on fish consumption and pregnancy and like what happens to the baby's brain development, cause again, that's what we're fighting against is like, we get the omega threes, which are super good for baby and like iodine and zinc and iron and, and, uh, B12 and all these other things in fish, um, versus you have the mercury and then you're going to have a problem. And there was a really, really good study, um, that tracked 12,000 mother infant pairs and um, looked at childhood IQ later on. And they found that the highest uh, IQ and best communication skills were among kiddos whose mothers ate 12 ounces or more of fish during pregnancy. And the worst outcomes were among children whose mothers consumed no seafood during pregnancy. So it appears that A, the selenium thing is probably at play. You're not necessarily absorbing all the mercury that's in the fish. Um, and B, the nutrient content is probably outweighing on some level the mercury um, exposure from there as well. So my take home from this, there are other studies I could cite, but my take home from this is definitely nutrient wise, seafood is worth eating um, more so than than avoiding it to avoid mercury exposure. It's it's less the mercury exposure is less of a concern than we've been led to believe. Um, the. I want to touch really quickly on the, um, the raw fish thing. So this oh, yeah. is so crucial. Um, and I have a whole section in chapter four, I believe of real food for pregnancy on fish consumption, um, specifically, cause there's usually warning against sushi. Mm-hmm. I found it super interesting, you know, perhaps not surprising, but in parts of Asia, especially Japan, raw fish consumption is pretty common in pregnancy and sometimes encouraged. Um, but I found it super surprising that, even in the UK, the British NHS says that it's usually safe to eat sushi when you're pregnant. Isn't it and flash frozen? Especially salmon? Yes. yes. That's the exact reason. I don't Is know that why I didn't eat it. That's so weird. Yeah. Because it's flash frozen and the seafood marketed for human consumption has like more, uh, undergo, undergoes more screening for contamination with microbes and other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the parasites that would be in there would be inactivated. Essentially, it's it's a, a very low-risk food, 
assuming that wherever you've purchased it from, it has been handled properly. Yeah. And you also haven't, hasn't been left out for a long period of time. Like obviously food safety stuff applies for every food though, <laughs> with every food, yeah. but it doesn't appear to be as unsafe. Um, it's as so funny because think. I ate, I bought every week from our farmer's market, like bricks of raw cheese. And I ate so cheese was, it was very important to me during pregnancy to get some <laughs> nutrition. And, um, when I wasn't feeling well and it sat well, the, that was the one food I could eat all the way through. And I ate so much raw cheese raw, but I, I knew the farmer. I like shook the farmer's hand when I bought the cheese. And exactly. so for whatever reason, I was, I had no issues with raw cheese or soft cheeses, uh, but I didn't eat sushi. And I, and I, it's not like I regret it. Cause that first sushi meal I had after my daughter was born was incredible. But next round, <laughs> if I'm craving sushi, I'm going to eat sushi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. They've, um, they've shown that certain nutrients are actually more bioavailable from raw fish. Mm. So oh, that the makes selenium, sense. just like with dairy, yeah, the iodine. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Same with dairy. Yeah. Wow. That's really good yeah. to know. Yeah. I think so, I'm going to go get sushi tonight. <laughs> Salmon sashimi is one of my favorite foods on earth. So, um, that's good to know. Yeah. And now I have excuse to spend the money on sushi more often. <laughs> it's beautiful. What about, I guess, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what about babies? Can like, could my daughter eat raw? Does that matter? Probably not. Um, to- sorry, yeah, listeners, no, just going that, on a tangent that's a good here. Question. <laughs> I haven't looked, you know, a lot of when I'm deciding like which foods are worth like, I, I call it like ri- risking, like getting sick or risking nutrient deficiencies. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of times I'm looking at that sort of risk benefit equation. So I've looked at that on um, pregnant women. I haven't looked at that specifically on kiddos, but I can imagine in a lot of cultures, just to look at it from a, more of an ancestral perspective, mm-hmm. babies are eating whatever. That's what, and our daughter eats what we eat. So she has raw egg yeah. yolk. She has raw yeah. cheese. She has, yeah. we, we cook dinner and we just give her little bits of what we are eating ourselves. Yeah. So yeah. when yeah. we go so, eat sushi, she'll get it. Yeah. So yeah, me personally, I mean, I, I let my son have some raw fish and cool. he had raw cheese and egg yolks were one of his first foods. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes down to more, um, more on the food safety side of things and like knowing your farmer, mm-hmm. uh, almost everything comes down to quality. Mm-hmm. And so that's really, yeah, just be super cool. careful on your sourcing and you should be, should be okay. And then mm-hmm. of course, if the kiddo has like a really compromised immune system, that's probably a different case, but yeah. in a, an infant who has, you know, full term, um, healthy immune system, particularly if they're breastfed, cause there's usually going to be some extra, you know, um, uh, special compounds in there and antibodies and stuff to yeah. improve their gut health. I, I wouldn't bat an eye to it. Cool. And her, one of her favorite foods is salmon. We did a can bone and skin on again for her and she loves it. So I'm excited now to try that. She seems to like seafood a lot. Yeah. So right on too. You know, he's in this, this kick where he loves oysters. I haven't he'll tried those yet, but them. I want to. Yeah. He'll ask for them by name. He'll say oysters. Oh my God. So cute. can. <laughs> oh, I'm going to try you? it. That's, That's amazing. Crazy. Apparently that was one of my husband's first foods and one of his favorite. His mom was just telling me that. So maybe it runs in the family. We'll have to give it to Evie too. That's awesome. Yeah, they're a good texture for kids. They're like really easy to, to chew up and okay. I don't know. We'll hey, super shot. nutrient dense, super yeah. high in B12 and zinc and so many trace minerals. I mean, I'm for it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> good to know. I'm in. Um, beautiful. I guess so then finishing up with this kind of part of the podcast. Um, what about a vegetarian diet? Now that we've talked about fish, what about other forms of animal intake, like uh, beef and chicken and eggs and all the other delicious things that we haven't mentioned much about yet? Yeah. Do you want to talk about those 
foods specifically, or do you want to touch I guess on the I vegetarian wanna, thing? The vegetarian thing. Um, so okay. I, I personally believe and have told and work with clients and have openly discussed the fact that I don't, I was a vegetarian for seven years and I was very sick. Um, I was anemic. I had amenorrhea, a whole host of things. And the first piece of steak that I ate, um, and I was also infertile and then it took a a number of years, five years, six years to get my period back. And I think a large part of that was taking in organ meats and red, a lot of steak, a lot of beef, um, a lot of egg yolks. And so I am curious to hear your thoughts on this because I believe we're, we're kind of in line here. Yeah, we're kind of in line here. <laughs> this was, uh, yeah, this was tricky. So I have a whole section in the book on nutrient dense foods. And then at the end of that section, the majority of the foods I mentioned are actually of animal origin, because my way of looking at prenatal nutrition is let's reverse engineer from what we know about nutrient needs and then see like where we can match those nutrient needs with food. And almost, almost nine times out of 10, the the dial points back to foods of animal origin. So there is a big challenge with a vegetarian diet with consuming enough of the nutrients that you need without very careful supplementation. And even with careful supplementation probably is not optimal. So the short list of nutrients that are challenging to obtain on a vegetarian diet are vitamin B12, choline, which you were getting a ton of eating eggs every day early on, um, glycine, uh, that's that special amino acid that we talked about, preformed vitamin A known as retinol, vitamin K2, DHA, iron, and zinc. Um, and part of that is that they're not, some of these are not available in plant foods at all. Other times they're available in plant foods, but in smaller quantities. And then finally, sometimes they are available in plant foods, foods but they're poorly absorbed. Um, and or nutrient needs for them would actually be higher because of that fact. That's the case with iron and zinc, for example. So it's very challenging to to do a vegetarian diet during pregnancy and do it right. At the end of that section, you know, I go through point by point, nutrient by nutrient, like what the research says on how much you need, meeting it from foods, what would be required to meet it from foods, what are the consequences of not getting enough, some of which are, you know, kind of scary. Um, and then at the end, I do include, you know, a, a consideration on how, if you ch- still choose to eat this way, how you could optimize your vegetarian diet. And again, although I don't think it is optimal, I think for many reasons, some people will still choose a vegetarian diet. And in that case, um, I can't endorse a vegan diet. I don't think it would be ethical for all that I know as a dietitian to endorse that during pregnancy. It is just nearly impossible to meet the nutrient needs because some of the nutrients required in pregnancy aren't recognized by conventional guidelines yet specifically like glycine, for example, or we're finding from new research that the needs for choline are probably double what our recommended intake is right now. Needs for B12 are triple the recommended intake. So if you start looking at it from that context, then it gets a little bit hairier (laughs) in terms of meeting those needs. But with a vegetarian diet for women who are eating eggs and dairy, um, or maybe even if they, if you want to make a couple little cheats and be pescatarian and yeah. maybe include some oysters, which some women do because from an ethical standpoint, there are some vegans who eat oysters because they don't have a central nervous system, so they don't feel pain. So if that's your rationale for eating yeah. vegetarian, then maybe that'll bring some comfort. Or even if you can incorporate bone broth, you know, again, you're 
you're using a part of the animal that would otherwise be thrown away. So if your reasons for being vegetarian are environmental, um, that's a way to, I think, to honor the animal's and, life. By and organs, too. Bone broth. And to organs, yeah, too, like also thrown away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you do vegetarian plus organ meats, like, yeah. you're covered. Like, yeah. seriously, you're covered. Um, but, yeah, it's just challenging. But if, if that is you and you still want to eat vegetarian, I would definitely um, refer you to that section of the book to to see how you could optimize it. Um, it's tough. It's tough to do. And I do think, you know, in an optimal world, and if we look at, you know, what was done traditionally, you know, most hunter gatherer populations had at least 55% of their calorie needs were being met by animal foods alone. Um, or if you look back from the, uh, the findings from Dr. Weston Price from the early 1900s, he traveled the globe documenting, the diets of, of indigenous cultures who had not yet been modernized. And then once they had been sort of civilized and brought in, he called them foods of modern commerce. So like processed stuff and sugar, processed grains, looked at the health of their offspring and the health of the population. First of all, he was unable to find an indigenous culture that was entirely vegan. They all had animal foods in some sort. And they also seemed to prize these animal foods in the preparation period and the time during pregnancy and lactation. And I think all the modern research on nutrients, how much is required and where we find those in foods is actually pointing to, actually there was a lot of wisdom in what he, what he found. There was a lot of truth in what he found. That's awesome. I'll link to his work as well. Um, I just, I am right there with you. And I love that you said that because some people are going to be pretty set in it. And I understand because I was the, one of those people, but to say, Hey, you can be a vegetarian. If you're a vegetarian and you eat organ meats, like that's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way to go about it. Because like you said, bones, organ meats, that stuff gets thrown away. So in, yeah. in, in your own way, you're kind of doing your part to help lessen the moral impact of wasting an animal that was going to be killed anyways. So I right. love that. Um, I am very, very, very. I'll say anal about knowing where my food comes from, especially my meat, because I was a vegetarian for so long. So yes. the way that I've come around is I will spend the money. I know my farmer. Um, we use butcher box and that's all from local or from small family farms, all hundred percent grass fed heritage pigs, pasture chicken. And so I know that I'm getting nutrient dense and not just more nutrition, but also, um, happier animals. And I feel and it's better for, they're better for the environment because it's not monocrop. Like there's a whole host of things. And there's yes. a great book called The Vegetarian Myth that was part of the catalyst to help me change. And uh, I just think there's ways where we can be moral and ethical and environmental and still eat properly raised animal proteins. And Likewise. Yes, I'm 100% on board with everything you just said. And we do the same. We have a local farmer where we get a pasture raised pig and a pasture-raised cow share. We do that. And we get have a lady down the road who has chickens that make amazing eggs. Um, so super picky. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think it's almost more important to be picky about your animal foods than any of your yeah. other foods. Like, I think it's more important to be picky about those than to be, than to be, you know, poo-pooing uh, non-organic produce. Yeah. <laughs> you know okay. Well, I mean? on that note, then I think before we, we might need to save gestational diabetes details and then for really diving into that for the next episode. But I am so. curious to hear your thoughts on fat, because this is something that I am incredibly more so than ever before. I'm more passionate about fat quality than even like, I'd rather eat a bowl full of 
gluten than a quarter cup of vegetable oil. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts uh, on vegetable oils, processed oils versus animal fats and coconut oils and, you know, butter and ghee. And do you have, um, do you talk much or do you work with women uh, in regards to selecting fats for pregnancy and postpartum? Yes, absolutely. And it's, uh, again, opposite of the conventional mm-hmm. recommendations on fat, which like the dietary guidelines push, push everybody to the supposedly healthier, they say, um, unsaturated fats, which is usually vegetable oils. Yeah. Fat, the quality of fat you eat is incredibly important. And I, um, highly recommend that people a get enough fat, but B, get enough of the right type of fat. And so I heavily push um, fats from properly raised animals. So like lard, pork fat, tallow, beef fat, et cetera. Um, Good quality dairy fat from um, pasture-raised cows. And then the less processed plant fats like olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, you know, coconut oil, avocado oil, um, some small quantities of unprocessed seed oils would be fine. But for the most part, the vegetable oils are not a good call. So corn oil, soybean oil, peanut oil, canola oil, safflower oil, cottonseed oil. And then worst of the worst, anything that has been partially hydrogenated, um, which then turns it into a, a trans fat, those are all problematic. And the issue actually goes pretty deep because the processed vegetable oils, um, or you could call them processed seed oils because they're mostly coming from seeds. The vegetable oil makes you think that it's like, they just pressed a chunk of broccoli and got some oil out of it. Makes all the sense <laughs> in the world. The fatty broccoli heads. Yeah, it's totally a marketing scheme totally. to call it vegetable oils. It's just leftover um, sludge, right? From like all the, the mass-produced corn and, and seed crops to feed cattle and I mean, for the most part, it's another yes, conversation yeah. again. <laughs> so they separate out the protein component and put it into protein bars or put it into animal feed. They separate out the starch component, process that into high fructose corn syrup, and then you have this oil left over, which they have to heavily process with, um, you know, equipment to refine it and deodorize it. They use chemical solvents to get as much oil as possible out of the remaining parts of the seed. It's really it's a highly processed very unhealthy food. And then of course they're stored in clear plastic containers. Um, and then like overheated when you're cooking, like in, a, you know, a deep fryer or whatever. And it creates highly toxic compounds called free radicals that are actually known contributors to a lot of pregnancy complications, mm-hmm. including miscarriage, preterm labor, preeclampsia and fetal growth restriction. Um, vegetable oils also are an issue. We talked about the importance of omega threes previously. Vegetable oils are, Furthermore, an issue because the type of fat they're highest in is a fat called omega-6. And omega-6 is generally uh, pro-inflammatory, and in some ways it can kind of compete with your omega-3 fats. So if your diet is too high in omega-6s and too low in omega-3s, which is pretty much the case almost across the board in the U.S., unless you're extremely picky about your food quality and your fat quality, um, it can actually lead to a higher higher levels of certain pregnancy complications like the ones that I just mentioned. It can also, um, they can compete for um, storage in the brain for the omega-3s and can actually lead to um, delayed psychomotor development in kiddos, um, delayed uh, like fine and gross motor skills. Um, 
So yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good thing to have too many right. omegas. And that's why I'm so, so big on trying to cook as often as you can at home, because ultimately, unless you're choosing a restaurant that you've specifically sought out because you know, they cook with a different oil, which is very rare. You're going to be taking in a lot of vegetable oil at restaurants because pretty much everything is cooked and coated in vegetable oils um, when it's prepared. They're very inexpensive, unfortunately. So yeah, either that, or they would be having, they might have trans fats. You know, a lot of companies have replaced their what was previously a partially hydrogenated frying oil with vegetable oil, which almost in some ways is no better <laughs> because right. they're, you know, at least the trans fats are stable. The, the uh, vegetable oils get, re- especially the ones that are repeatedly heated, end up having a number of issues um, uh, developing more free radicals and more reactive oxygen species. It's all like complicated talk for things that cause inflammation in your body Mm -hmm. and you don't want more things that cause inflammation in your body when you're pregnant. So be uber careful on the, uh, vegetable oils. Um, so mayonnaise, salad dressings, um, read the labels on your snack foods. And again, like you said, like die not less cook Mm -hmm. more at home because they're just, they're going to use a lot of them. And then if by chance you're still consuming foods that have partially hydrogenated oils, which will be your source of trans fats or man-made trans fats anyways, then you want to read the ingredient label. Don't trust anything that says no, no trans fats because right. there's a labeling loop that allows you to have half a gram of trans fats per serving and still advertise trans fat free or zero grams trans fat. And the serving so, can be what, like a teaspoon, which <laughs> exactly, is, you're getting right. way more than that. Right, right. <laughs> Right. So they, yeah, they do two things. They make the serving size smaller um, and or they reduce the quantity of trans fats and then add in more preservatives because you take out the trans fats and you don't have the, trans fats never go bad. They never go rancid. That's why Twinkies last forever or used to. I don't know if they've reformulated them last time since I looked last time. But um, yeah, so you take out the trans fats and then things go bad quicker. So then they use vegetable oils plus Uh, preservatives or agents that prevent the oil from going rancid, which are other chemicals that you don't want to eat. So it's just like, be picky about Mm -hmm. this one. This is one thing that it's really important to be picky about. And I'm that person who, so I traveled this past week and at the airport, San Diego airport, there's a counter burger, which is pretty good quality meat. Not my ideal, but it's like, it's pretty good. And I've done some research there. So I'll eat it when I'm traveling. And they, for all, they had all these different like sauces and dressings. And I am the person that held up the line and asked what oil was in the dressings and had them bring me the binder and show me the ingredients to make sure that it was olive oil. And I, I'm unapologetic about it because this is stuff that's fueling my body, but then also I'm nursing my kid. So I don't want free radicals in my system. And if I'm out at a restaurant, I'll say, like if it's breakfast, I'll always ask them to cook my eggs in, in butter instead of oil. Um, I get funny looks, but they do it. And, and you are the consumer. So ask for what you want and you will get it. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah. yeah you I'm annoying about it, up. but I, I don't, I, like I said, I'm unapologetic because it's also, it's people asking questions like those at restaurants that are going to push change in the restaurants and they'll start to think about, Oh, why does she care if it's vegetable oil? And then maybe they'll start to make some changes. So I will soapbox about that all day, but I'll stop Vote now. with your fork. Exactly. And more to your point as a nursing mom, you'll be, if you get to chapter 12 in the book mm-hmm. where I talk about the nutrient transfer into breast milk, the quality of fat you eat also affects the 
levels of fatty acids in your breast milk. So So the more omega-6s you eat, the more omega-6s in your breast milk, the more omega-3s you eat, the more omega-3s in your breast milk. Which one do you want? Right. So it's amazing. And I would love to have you come back on because to talk postpartum somewhat selfishly, but also because we have a lot of postpartum mamas. And I know for me right now, um, all I want is fat. And I, I told my, our listeners, I did a little test and I started like tracking my macros a little bit and I decreased fat and increased carbs a little bit just to play and try and balance out my macros and I felt like garbage. And so I've stopped counting anything and I am eating so much fat. And now if I eat sugar or like carbohydrates um, in higher quantities, I get brain fog. I don't feel well. So for me right now, my body is feeling so well and my milk production is so good off of eating significantly higher fat than probably I've ever had in my life. A lot of fat and very, for me, especially very low, low carbohydrate. And it's just, it's fascinating what happens when you just kind of listen to what our bodies, our bodies are so wise. So they know what. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. There's, and what's, well, we could talk about this in our next interview, but it's also interesting that there's like a, there's a wide range of experiences with the whole levels of milk production versus your macronutrient intake. And Mm. it's not the same for every woman. Certainly fat needs are higher when you're breastfeeding for sure. Um, the carbohydrate needs, they're different woman to woman. And so some, some women actually notice a drop in supply if they go lower in carbs Mm. and there could be many reasons for that or, you know, things that could be tweaked to, to raise that up. Or there's also a possibility that, yeah, some women do better with more carbs than others. And that probably holds true with nursing as well. Super interesting. Our bodies are super smart teachers and I wish there was more emphasis in, um, encouraging us to listen. I'm such a big proponent of mindful eating. Me too. It's huge. Taking a few breaths before you eat, listening to what your cravings are telling you. And it's, it's, you know, it takes, it can take a lifetime of practice to try and develop that. And I'm still a work in progress, but (laughs) all um, of us are. (laughs) it's pretty incredible. So um, I would love to have you back on to talk more about that if you would. And does your, does Real Food for Pregnancy talk at all? I think we already mentioned this about postpartum. Yes. So yeah, chapter 12 That's is right. all fourth trimester stuff. Okay. Um, yeah. So we can talk about that again um, in a, in a follow-up interview. I love that. There's yeah, a ton about um, sort of radically changing the way that we view postpartum mm-hmm. to nourish yourself so you can better care for your kiddo. Mm-hmm. And that goes in, uh, falls into many different categories. So not just the food component, because I do talk about the food component, both for recovery and for, you know, boosting the nutrient content of breast milk, but also just in the way you move the body, the way you handle your mental health, the way you prioritize self-care, the way even in your future pregnancy planning, what lab tests you get from your doctor. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to dive in. There's just so much, there's so much to consider. Mm -hmm. And yet I feel like during pregnancy, all the focus is on a, you know, having a good pregnancy, having a healthy pregnancy, but B it's like planning for birth. Yeah. It's like, I was definitely like that too. I didn't put nearly enough thought into postpartum planning. And I think this is kind of like a, a classic issue with first time moms is that you're all about planning the birth, planning the birth, planning the birth. And then like 
okay, the birth is like maybe a one day, maybe two day event, maybe three days if you're kind of unlucky, whatever it is, like birth is over. And then like, welcome to postpartum and you're going to be here for a really long time. And crap, I didn't plan anything. Yeah. And then to make matters worse, then so many women think like, I need to get my body back or they start thinking about like dieting or losing weight. And it's like, no, this is more than ever before. This is such an important time to take care of yourself. Um, So I'm so glad you said that because I think that's something that's super... Uh, it's just overlooked and under discussed. And so I'm really excited to have you back on to talk about the postpartum period because um, it's just fascinating. And I hope you guys all will go check out her books because there's just like, this was just a a tiny, tiny glimpse into all the information. And I'm so grateful that you came on to share. Yeah. So much in there. That's like scratches the surface. (laughs) We could do like an eight hour interview and we'd still be going. (laughs) Well, that's why people need to buy the book. (laughs) It's definitely worth it. Um, well, so where can people find you and what's the best way to connect? Sure. So the best way to, well, if we're talking about the book, the best way to find the book real food for pregnancy is no surprise at realfoodforpregnancy.com, real simple. Um, I'm also giving away a free chapter uh, on that site. So if you want to check out the book before you buy, go ahead and grab a free chapter there. Uh, And then you can find me on my main website, which is pilatesnutritionist.com and all the usual social media channels, you know, Facebook, Twitter, I'm pretty new to Instagram, but I'm trying it out. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I'll, we'll link to all that in the show notes as well. So people can find you real easily. You guys just head to my website, um, or Jess's website and hit the podcast tab and we'll have all of that there ready to click. And I'm so grateful to have you on. Thank you so much again. Thank you. All right. And I'll shoot you an email. We'll get you back on. And I'm sure everyone will be waiting excitedly for that. There we go. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. See you next time. Hey guys, Jess here. Just wanted to give you the heads up on a great deal that we don't want you to miss out on. Laura and I have recently teamed up with our friends at ButcherBox to bring you an amazing offer on premium grass-fed, hormone, and antibiotic-free meats delivered right to your door. We've absolutely been loving the opportunity to put together our own custom boxes of the highest quality beef, pork, and chicken, and we definitely don't want you guys to miss out on the chance to try it too. Right now, if you visit butcherbox.com forward slash modern mamas, you get the chance to get $10 off of your first box plus two free 10-ounce grass-fed ribeyes. You definitely don't want to miss out on this deal friends so get on it